We really enjoy our conversations with economists on this podcast, even though we rail against their persistent inability to forecast the property market. Economics is a social science that looks into the accumulation of wealth, market forces, supply and demand, the impact of government intervention, and ultimately how humans behave in the midst of all this. Economists can help us look deeper and think deeper so that we might better understand the property market without seeking sugar hit simple solutions to challenges like how to ensure every Australian has a roof over their head. Beyond being quoted in clickbait headlines, how can economists help us improve our society? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're talking to economist Dr Cameron Murray who describes himself as having a passion for improving society and thinks economics could be much better than it is. He specialises in property markets, environmental economics and corruption, sounds interesting, and might be considered by the more entrenched market commentators as a bit of a maverick. We're curious to hear how his research informs his views on the market and confident that we should be able to tackle more than one elephant in the room today. Thank you so much for joining us, Cameron. Thanks, Veronica and Chris, for having me. Cameron, so good to have you on. Um, I mean, I was recently reading the Falinski report. I watched your sort of um, submission and I was quite humorous, the video, um, some of the questions and the conversation you had. But, um, you know, there's some really interesting insights. So, so thank you so much for coming on. I mean, what was your sort of initial reaction when you read the Falinski report? And, you know, did anything surprise you or is there anything they really missed that they, um, they missed the opportunity, I guess? Yeah, look, I think the findings of the report were pretty well entrenched in the terms of reference when it began. It was called the inquiry into housing supply, and we've had many such things. And and so, you know, it, it, although some of the submissions and hearings touched on, uh, you know, making housing cheaper for residents, uh, a lot of it was just to do with sort of um, making it easier to be a property developer and making it easier to... Um, sort of make money by by owning property, so I wasn't wasn't super surprised um, at how narrow the scope ended up being, um, but it was a good chance to at least touch on, you know, some of the key ideas. And and as you said, you know, the my the hearing I was in uh, with Jason Falinski and, and the other um, committee members got a bit heated because I was trying to push the idea that, you know, property is an asset. And we're all pretending that it's like apples, you know, or oranges. And if you have a good, good uh, rainy season, you get a lot of supply, and all of a sudden you've got to flood the market with that supply, and the price comes down. And we've, we're sort of forgetting that, you know, property, undeveloped land, housing, all of it—it's an asset. It's on people's balance sheets, and it makes a return. And and once we sort of shift our thinking to acknowledge that, then maybe we can do something about it. So no, overall, not too surprised. Um, but yeah. it was a good chance to get some of that discussion out there in the public. I, I think I, I, when I was listening to it, I actually thought, you know what, this makes so much sense. I hadn't actually thought about it like that before. Mm. And um, 
And, you know, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, developers control land and they re slowly release it to control prices. But, um, you know, I think that people don't really realise if you were the developer and, you know, if you were trying to make money and stay profitable and hire people, you would do the same. And so yeah. can you explain to our listeners a little bit around the why the drip feeding happens um, and how much that really, it's not the sort of the consumer demand that's slowing things, it's really the... A bit of both. Oh, uh, yeah, sense. yeah. It's it's an interaction um, in the market, right? Um, so just like when I try and you know sell out of a share portfolio, I don't dump everything on the market at once, right? I tell my broker to dribble it out and you know at a certain rate, so I maximise the return I get. Now you've got to think about that yeah. that problem at a massive scale, right? You've got big, expensive, lumpy housing, and if you've got a large building or a subdivision. Um, you don't, you're not, you know, you want to maximize the total revenue you get from that project or the present value of that total revenue by selling at the right period of time at the right rate. And, and of course, it makes sense to do that. I'm not, you know, upset that yeah. people are running their business in the most profitable way to run their business, you know. Um, but yeah. what, what baffles me is that um, as academics and thinkers and policy people, we can't just acknowledge this fact about the property market yeah. that that your regulations about planning are not going to make every current landowner suddenly panic and change their mind and say, geez, I didn't want to own land, silly me, I want to sell it to someone and have cash instead, let's flood the market until prices fall. And, yeah. you know, we know what that is, right? That's a property market crash when everyone decides they're, they're owning the wrong asset. And, um, you know, it was interesting because I, you know, I think Jason Falinski is a, a pretty intelligent guy. I mean, he's a politician, so... You've got to understand his. You've got to understand the constraints he operates in. So I'm not going to sort of, you know, say he's a fool or anything like that. But he, he operates in a with political constraints, um, and, and he, you know, he was reasonable enough to to take my advice. And I said, go and ask some property developers to come in here and tell you how much they think prices are going to fall uh, when you rezone their neighbour's land, right? And ask them if it's in their interests to rezone all these other people in their neighborhoods and increase the amount of competition in the market like you know because what they're trying to say is that oh please uh provide us more competition through the planning scheme to make the price of the product we sell lower now either they're the worst lobbyists ever or they're sort of uh, capitalizing on this myth about how property markets work and they know that this is not going to happen and so you know, Jason Falinski, he brought in some developers and he asked them, hey, you know, if we rezone the whole country for high-rise, is it plausible that prices would fall 20%? And they all said no. They said that's an abnormally high price fall. It's never going to happen. Don't be silly. And so I'm sitting there thinking, well, hang on. The premise of this whole report is that if you do let the market rip, that they will just mm. underbid each other until prices collapse. And, you know, as, as Peter Tulip submitted, he said, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of the price of a house in Sydney is due to planning. Well, shouldn't that all evaporate? And why would those people who are in the market say the opposite, right? And, um, and so, you know, that was somewhat ignored. That wasn't put in the final report that they said that. And, you know, I, I've tried to promote that as best I can because I think that's the, the real evidence. When people in the market under oath, at a hearing, say, actually, you know, it's not going to really change price. I think we can trust that. I found, find that so interesting. And it's inter also because literally just this week we, we're recording this, when are we recording this, the, towards the end of April, we'll release this in probably May. We, 
in April released just Chris and my musings over the Flinsky Report mm. after reading it. And it's funny, after I replayed it, and listen, I listen to every episode afterwards, it doubles the learning, if I, particularly if we're interviewing someone like you. And I was replaying that and I'm thinking the one obvious thing that leapt out at me was that if 40%, as, as is often touted, of the price of a brand new property is in the layers of taxation, you know, the various mm -hmm. layers of government, if you suddenly drop the prices by 40%, well, then you're going to get flooded with demand for by buyers you're prepared to pay the, the inflated price anyway mm. or so basically then the, po the then the developer gets to pocket that money mm -hmm. as pure profit mm -hmm. you know so i mean it's like this whole whole idea i mean we were this all sounds great in theory but mm -hmm. in practice it's never going to happen is it that's right well we're already paying the maximum right like there's no incentive not to so you've got an asset that returns whatever it returns and and that's you know the market price is what it's worth to the marginal buyer um, you know, it doesn't yeah. matter what, you know, it doesn't matter how you change the cost of that asset. So, for example, you know, if there were two classes of BHP shares and one class of share had a $100 fee per year to own that share, well, that share would be worth less, right? It'd be yeah. worth exactly $100 a year less um, mm. because it's an asset that comes with an additional liability. And that's the sort of true in property mm. markets. And, and I guess we know that it's not cost-based, right? We know that this is not what's determining prices because when you rezone land and the value goes up the cost doesn't go up for the owner yeah. of that rezoned land but they still charge the market price they just take it so it's clearly not yeah. based on the cost uh and we could reverse that you know uh we could charge them um charge them more and they would make less money and i think you know you've got to have a political economy hat on as well here and, and understand that you know if it's true what is said that costs for example, developer charges for infrastructure. If it's true that they get passed onto the price, why are developers upset? Because they can just put their price up by that much and, and often they claim by even more. Some of them yeah. say, you know, for every dollar of developer charge, the price goes up $2. I'm like, so you should be lobbying for bigger charges, right? Because you get a dollar free for every dollar of charge, right? <laughs> so clearly it's incident on them. It costs them when they own land, right? Yeah. Um, mm. And that's why they lobby against it. But, you know, they've got, to, they've got to say what's in their interest is in the interest of society. That's what lobbyists do. I'm not holding it against them. But I think, you know, politicians and the academic community has to be a little bit smarter about, about the motives behind these claims. I mean, like you said, they had marginal buy, really. It's like if you... Mm can create more stock, it, it only matters if that's too much stock and that then leads to prices to fall because there's not enough demand. Yeah. So that's not in the developer's interest. So if I was a you know developer of Greenfield Estates, you'd be saying, well, how many lots are available? How many of my competitors releasing over the next few years? How strong is the demand? Actually, you know what? Let's not develop that right now. We've got a, the chance of that selling at a price that's going to be profitable is pretty low. Let's just land bank it. Let's just leave it, right? And mm. the same thing for apartments. You know, mm. if... If, if I can see that Meriton and uh, Mervac and Green, uh, you know, Greenland are all doing these apartment developments and I'm going, well, to be honest, there's heaps of two mm. beds and one beds in the marketplace coming on in the next three years. We've got an amazing commercial site that's ready to go with a high rise, but let's just hold that back. And so it, it, it sort of always leads back to the market, doesn't it? You know, how much buyers are in the market yeah. right now? And that's the only amount of supply that we can create because otherwise developers would lose money and then they're out of business. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're not idiots, right? I think we've got to remember they're in the business of making money and that's what we expect them to do. Like, that's the, sort of their job. Mm. Like, uh, let's, not, mm. let's not pretend that they're, they're in the business of making their product as cheap as possible. They're, they're in the sort of asset trading game. They want to make money. That's fine. Um, 
But yeah, we've got to understand that, for example, new housing in Australia is not like, you know, you don't accidentally build too much of it. It's pretty much build to yeah. order. You only build when you get a buyer to show up. And if that buyer doesn't show up, there is an optimal amount of time that you wait before you decrease the price, right? Um, and yeah. so, you know, it's very demand-led how quickly things happen. And so, for example, I look at um, the annual reports of publicly listed housing developers where they're, of course, obliged to be honest to their shareholders about how they supply to the market. And they're very frank about, oh, we have the uh, land banks in yep. capital efficient structures so that we can be patient to time, you know, time the market and, and take advantage of future opportunities. And so if you, for example, divide how many new lots they sell by the total stock of lots they own, you get something like, well, sorry, the reverse, the total stock by how many they sell, you get something like you know, between 12 and 17. So essentially, if you kept selling at this average rate, you've already got 12 to 17 years worth of land on your balance sheet. You don't yeah. have to buy any more land. And so the wow. question, yeah. yeah, the question is, well, why would you hold all that land if owning land is a bad investment and you've got to panic and sell, right? Well, we know because yeah. undeveloped land's an asset. You like it on your balance sheet. It goes up in value with the price of housing. It's a good thing to own. And you can also look at how quickly you know, the industry responds to the market. So I've been looking a little bit at, at the absorption rate, you know, how quickly uh, the market gets supplied with new dwellings. And you can see in these large master-planned estates with over 3,000 dwellings that most of the time when the market's not too hot, they might sell at five, four or five dwellings a month. And then, for example, in Victoria in 20, um, sort of 16 to 18, 2017, that boom era. Yeah they would increase their output by a factor of eight. So instead of five mm. a month, they go up to 40 a month. And the question is, well, if you could do 40 a month then, why didn't you do 40 a month the rest of the time? And it's mm. obviously because, you know, you want to maximize the present value of your revenue based on the market conditions, and that's what's optimal. So, you know, that's, I think, the fact that we've got to understand if we're, if we're thinking that supply is going to change house prices, home ownership, and all those things we care about, we have to acknowledge that, Property yeah. markets supply in this way. It's very different to, you know, having a good yeah. mango season so the price of mangoes go down. <laughs> like if every mango yeah. was billed to order, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's such a, I'm massively for developers in terms of, you know, they're playing a role in society. I know on our podcast, we've highlighted a lot of issues with new stock and, you know, we, we don't really encourage our clients to go and buy any of uh, new property <laughs> at all, to be honest. Um, no. And, you know, so our listeners here are informed, right? They understand that. But we know that they play a role, and especially developers in the last two years have had a really tough time. You know, lots of developers are going under, you know, employing thousands of people, you know, building costs, um, et cetera. But I think it's just being, you know, uh, frank, this is, you know, they're in business, right? And they've just got to make sure that they, um, and, you know, are, are trying to stay sustainable. Yeah. And so we, we just can't assume that they're just going to flood the market and, and cause prices to fall. That's, that's exactly yes. right. Uh, can I just... Um, Mention one other thing, and, and this comes up a lot in the supply debate. We, we talk about governments releasing land, and I'm like, I, I go on realestate.com and I can't find any New South Wales government houses for sale, right? They rezone land, they respond to applications, but essentially only landowners can decide whether they're selling or not. And so I feel like this is just another one of those tricks to acknowledge that actually the market has a sort of built-in speed limit on how much it will supply, um, you know, 
And, and for example, you know, developers often complain mm. that, oh, it took me seven years to get that land rezone. I'm like, you're telling me you're in the business of building housing and you keep going and buying land that's not zoned for housing and complaining mm. about it. Like, go and buy the zoned land if that's your business. And if your business yeah. is getting the zoning changed, we'll stop complaining because, you know, everybody wants rules changed in their favour. that is and that is very true because of course we all know that that's the single biggest um cause for increasing land value is a Mm. rezoning so so therefore they're they're speculating and you know why why should their ride be made any easier yeah but there's also the other side of this so that's the sort of supply of new stock then Mm -hmm. you've got supply of existing stock so Mm -hmm. you've got what 11 million homeowners or property owners in this country Mm -hmm. of who own properties that have been built, right, whether it's been Mm -hmm. built last year or whether it was built 50 years ago or so. So then what you're talking about, supply, extends to that as well. Like so when the market goes up, if you're holding a a, a good property in a blue chip area, you don't necessarily feel pressure to put the property on the market when the market falls and and you're going to try and maximise your sale price and blah, blah, blah. That's just the way it all works, right? Yeah. But it's sort of a bit disingenuous, isn't it? I mean, the government's sort of saying, oh, look, we're really worried about housing affordability, so 100,000, you know, first-home buyers every year can pile into the market. Um. When you've got 11 million property owners that don't want their properties to fall in value, you know, so, and vote. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, that's sort of one half of this. And I know that affordability doesn't just extend to people buying their first home either. I I also understand this is, this is about um, affordable rental. There's a whole, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of issues tied up in this, Um, which I'd love to get your thoughts on sort of how that may be solved. And there was something quite interesting that you touched on in, in your um, submission that was a response to a question. I think it was a mm-hmm. member from Parramatta that asked you some interesting questions. But, you know, like, is, it, is this affordability conversation even legit? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting, yeah, Veronica, you, you sort of, yeah, you've stumbled right into my wheelhouse there of the affordability debate and and i guess yeah i've got a few responses firstly we don't talk about you know petrol affordability or you know clothing (laughs) affordability we we either it's cheap or it's expensive right and so i often find when 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 we go down this path of affordability we're essentially we're already giving up um, you know, the logic of the conversation. Let's talk, do we want prices higher, do we want rents higher or lower, etc. Mm. Um, so I do find that that's, um, you know, one thing. And I think the second thing about affordability is um, separating being owning the asset and how much the asset costs and residing in a house. And so you can mm. reside in a house in two ways. You can rent a house from a landlord or you can rent money from a bank and be your own landlord. And um, what's actually happened recently is renting money from the bank has been become much, much cheaper than renting a house from a landlord. Mm. And so we actually saw from 2020 until now a massive boom in first-home buying. I think it was 180000 per year the last three years and less than 100000 a yeah. year the five years before because mm. renting money became cheaper than renting houses. Um, and so we had that sort of temporary adjustment. Mm. We had a very <laughs> big period of home buying affordability that, you know, it sort of burnt itself out as prices rose, right, as we attracted people Mm. in and returned to this what economists call the equilibrium where you're indifferent Mm. between renting money or renting a house. Um, 
And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really um, subtle question. What are we trying to achieve with affordability? Because we could just, you know, drop yeah. interest rates more and, and, you know, do another little, uh, another little adjustment period, um, get some more first home buyers in, or do we want rental affordability? And in which case, well, how do you allocate houses yeah. if not by price, which is what we do with rents? Like, do we have some mm. kind of rent control? Do we have some kind of public housing alternative? Uh, which we did historically, right? So, where I get to on this debate is, well, what have we done historically? And, well, to boost home ownership, what you need to do is to get landlords to sell to first home buyers because all those dwellings have to become owned by non-home buyers. So, in the mm. 1950s, we had tight rent controls and credit restrictions on investors, but um, the government supported credit for first home buyers. And so that forced a lot of landlords to sell those terrible assets, rent-controlled assets, to <laughs> these first home buyers. We had very active public involvement in housing subdivisions and new estates to get those first home buyers in. And we got home ownership up from 52 to 72% in 15 years. So, uh, you know, that's something we could do if we wanted. I think manipulating the asset price of housing, as you said, very tricky. Um, so 65% of households are owners and 18% of households are mm. landlords. Um, the average politician owns 2.3 dwellings, so over $2 million <laughs> worth of housing. And to think that we're going to sort of somehow change policy to manipulate that asset price with, you know, different tax mm. settings, you know, every 10% off the housing market is a trillion dollars off our balance sheets of those people, right? So, yeah, you're right. It's a bit of a conundrum and that's why we end up with things like first home buyers grants, Suck in some first-home yep. buyers, don't decrease the price, win-win, right? Yeah. Um, the question is how long can you do that? Other, you know, does it just perpetuate intergenerational equity issues within housing? Does it help people who are going to be renting for life anyway? And so on and so forth. So, yeah. You, you, do you think that the, um, the NIMBY mentality or the development planning controls in uh, the more premium lifestyle suburbs of our capital cities that – you know, yeah, they're more relaxed in, you know, region in mm -hmm. the fringes and the greenfields and the high density sort of pockets, et cetera. But do you think this NIMBY factor um, does, you know, create issues with affordability for, you know, or do you yeah, think it's just... not really. No, I mean, um, look, I, I'm, I'm torn when it comes to the NIMBYs, right? I think people should have the security and investment in their neighbourhoods, right? So, and I'm, I think they, people should have some kind of democratic input. And so I guess my view is more that, you know, the planning system needs to have sort of a more democratic response rather than a um, whoever's got the most time to attend meetings and write letters type <laughs> um, sort of interaction with the community. Because I think most people are quite reasonable uh, at the end of the day. I'm in, a, in Brisbane in West End and you know, since I moved here 15 years ago, the population's quadrupled, right? It's totally different. And I can tell you the main thing that upsets people is crappy-looking buildings with no effort mm. to do anything on the street. Um, the council's lagging with, you know, the infrastructure. They basically say, mm. oh, we're going to have an extra 10,000 people living here and, uh, you know, we're going to do nothing, basically. One extra bus stop or something. You're like, well, hang on a minute. Come on, yeah, these okay. guys have paid, yeah. well, the other interesting thing is these guys have paid their infrastructure charges mm. to fund yeah. this. And so, look, I think, I think there are definitely better ways to go about mm. it, but I don't see it having broad effects on the level of prices or the level of rents. So, yeah, it might make some pockets relatively more attractive. So, you can imagine there's a rental gradient 
So some places get a little bit higher, others get a little bit lower relative to each other. But that whole curve, how high that is vertically compared to incomes, I don't think is really affected by this. There are just so many um, frontiers across our cities uh, where there's plenty of potential for development that I don't see it being a, a major issue. Australia has got a very high percentage of um, home ownership uh, compared to other countries in the world, even though it's been declining. Why is that? Why is that? <laughs> uh, well, we, we sort of engineered it, basically. Um, it wasn't always the case. In the 1800s, estimates put home ownership below 40%, nearly all the way up until um, uh, the end of the Great Depression and the Second World War. So it's really a, a post-World War II phenomenon, high home ownership in Australia. And, and we engineered it. We had very heavy-handed government involvement. We had... Um, a huge public housing investment over 20 years, 15% of new dwellings for, for two decades were public housing. And then we gave them to wow. tenants at a discounted price for the next 20 years. So we essentially privatized mm. them and in the process boosted home ownership. So you know, that's the type of thing that gets high home ownership everywhere. And yes, the problem long-term that we're facing now is that political one. I think if home ownership was 40%, we'd have a very different political debate mm. about what we do about housing, how interventionist should we be, um, and so on and so forth. But because we're at the other end there, at the 65 and previously 70%, um, you know, there's just too many votes on the line to sort of um, put people's biggest asset at risk and the value, even if, you know, it's somewhat indirect. That It's, it's a very clear political threat. And we saw what happened when um, Labor took to the previous election, you know, just a few tax tweaks uh, for investment property that, that clearly was not um, politically favourable. It's interesting. I was going to ask you about some of those sort of taxes and, you know, stamp duty, et cetera. I mean, do you think that, you know, they're part of the solution, you know, to potentially, if we want to increase, let's say, like say around affordability, you know, if we want to increase home ownership or make it more affordable for first home buyers, yeah. maybe we should be doing things like, you know, increasing CGT and, you know, increasing, um, you know, getting rid of negative gearing. But then that, that makes it less affordable for renters, I guess, um, because you're going to encourage less investors in the market um, mm. and less, you know, rental supply, I guess. Um and you know, if we're not build, if investors aren't buying more, then um, then you're going to have less supply and you know more demand with mm -hmm. migration, etc. So it's 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 always balancing, isn't it? It's it's which ones if it's actually going to get the right result. Yeah, uh, that's that's a good point. That you know, you tighten up investors. Investors buy most of the new, at least apartment stock, right? Yeah. And <laughs> if we've got a build to order type thing, right? You want sort of wealthy people buying them for their tax breaks, essentially, right? They're they're big uh, depreciation yeah. schedules. Um, yeah. So, so that's all fine and well. Uh, what you can do is, I guess, have differential stamp duties for first-home buyers, etc., to give them some advantage in the market against other buyers, so on and so forth. I, like you can do all that. Um, there may be small differences. For example, um, I think uh, you know in Singapore recently they've increased stamp duty. So for your first home it's zero, for your second home it's like twelve percent, for your third home it's twenty percent, and so on and mm. so forth. To to really sort of uh, create that effect of, of giving that first time buyer a, a big advantage. So, yeah, I mean, you, you can do all that. Um, these are relatively minor tweaks. I think, you know, I find it puzzling um, 
you know, as you, as you said, Chris, that, you know, we need the investors to buy the new dwellings to keep the stock expanding. I find it puzzling that almost any other major capital investment that we think is good for society, if we want it built, we just build it. Like, we don't go, oh, if we could only just give submarine builders a discount on their tax, we'll get some mm. submarines. I'm like, well, how about you just build it, right, and give it to the, the Navy and off they go. If, well, if only we built this road. Well, how about you just go and acquire the land and build the road, right? Um, yeah. So I find it yeah. puzzling that the, you know, the governments are almost the only organisation in Australia that think they can't make money building houses. Um, <laughs> And, uh, so they, they so, did it, as you said, though, they did it after World War II, mm. you know, and potentially that's one of the reasons that what everyone hates are baby boomers because they benefited <laughs> largely from yeah. that, you know. But, but mm. you know, so it's been done in this country. It's been like, done. It's, I mean, it's still What's been done. What's the resistance? Yeah. Yeah, so, look, I mean, I'll tell you, I had a conversation with Doug Cameron, former Labor MP, uh, federal, very nice guy, very lefty, and I said, look, you know, you're worried about housing, why don't you go and build some houses and give them to the people who don't have houses at a cheap price, just like we would any type of sort of welfare system. And he just basically said, you know, governments don't do that anymore. It's just we all, we've all convinced ourselves that we've changed our mind. I'm like, well, that's a bit weird, right? Like, you know, you're tying, tying your hands behind your back before you've hit the starting line. Um, why would you choose that? I don't think people are going to get upset if the government came around and built houses for people and gave them to them cheap. I mean, quite clearly, everyone who gets a house is going to be happy. All their friends and family might be happy and tell their friends and family. So I, I find it, yeah, kind of puzzling um, how much we're willing to, for example, subsidise rents in the private market but not build public housing. Like, for example, the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation, the New South Wales you know, owner of the public housing stock, it's been selling off dwellings for, for the last decade, but the value of it, yeah. the value of its balance sheet went from thirty two billion in twenty fourteen to fifty four billion in twenty twenty, even though it's got twelve hundred fewer um, public housing dwellings, and they've all degraded and so on and so forth. So, you mm -hmm. know, they're out there just twenty billion dollars in eight years just from sitting on this asset. And pretending that they don't have any money, it's too difficult to build houses, and it's it's you know it's costing mm. us a fortune. Whereas any other private developer would be like, "This is great. This is you know, I'm going to leverage up into more of this stuff and ex enhance my balance sheet, right, and uh, and increase the value <laughs> of my organisation." If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. <laughs> so, I mean, you're this model, is, is this the Singapore model that, from my understanding, that they help first home buyers? And I understand it through reading one of your articles. Mm. But um, is that sort of the model which you suggest we potentially should be looking at where we basically give first home buyers a cheap home and allow them <laughs> to, to get access to the market? Um, and we try to build as many as we can, really, um, over the next one, two, three, four decades, but you can only get one, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the Singapore model is a very specific way of providing public housing. Essentially, 
Um, and, and it is the model that I now propose as, as what should we do because of those political mm. constraints you talked about, Veronica, that, you know, anything we do that's obviously going to directly crash property values is, is a political no-go. Um, but there's a stigma also into public housing and public housing tenants and dependency mm. and so on. But what if we had public home ownership, not just private and public rental, but a public home ownership alternative? That's, yeah. that's what Singapore does. So if you don't own property and you're a citizen or permanent resident, once you hit 21, you can apply as a couple to the Housing Development Board in Singapore and they will essentially um, sell you a new apartment at construction cost or less or, in fact, much less. So the current price range, so a Singaporean dollar, Aussie dollar is pretty much one for one. It's between ninety dollars and $300,000 for brand new apartment. So ninety wow. is more like <laughs> a sort of one better and a 300000 is more like a three better. They will mm. also lend you money at the cash rate plus one and a half percent. So currently that's, you know, less than 2%. And yeah. you can use your compulsory super to pay a deposit and the mortgage. So it's a massive, massive sort of welfare funnel of just getting people a house cheap when they're young. And so if you're yeah. average Singapore couple in their 20s who buy an HDB dwelling, uh, it costs them $0 out of pocket because their combined co compulsory savings pays the deposit and the loan. And they typically pay it off in 10 or 15 years. And so and what happens is you create a parallel market. So there's a mandatory occupation period for five years. Yeah. And then you can sell it to someone else. Another right. eligible first-time buyer who meets all the criteria, you can sell it to them at a negotiated price. That other person will choose, do I buy the new one or do I buy the second-hand one, which is in a different neighborhood at a different price? And as long as you, um, you can buy a second HDB as long as you sell your first one within six months. And so you create this parallel, cheap uh, home ownership market um, that is anchored with this price floor because the public developer will, will keep building new houses at that entry-level price and anybody in that market has that opportunity to buy that cheap house. So, so you're not going to bid it up to the same as the private market because if you qualify, you can go buy that $200,000 apartment anytime you want. You just have to wait a couple of years till it's built. Um, and so, if, you know, my, my, I've interviewed people in the HDB in Singapore, new tenants in Singapore, people who work in the housing sector have moved to Australia and they, they sort of, they're puzzled that other countries don't copy this because they went from mm. below 20% home ownership in the 1960s to 89% today. Wow. So, it's completely essentially solved. There's no, essentially no homelessness because there's this large public organization that just builds and manages so many dwellings. Um, they just essentially put you, in a, put you in a dwelling for, you know, $60 a month or some token amount <laughs> and provide other welfare services to keep you off the street. But it's very, um, you know, it's hands-on in some ways, but it's hands-off in others because you can... When you buy a new dwelling, you can actually fit it out however you like. You can go raw and have no kitchen, only an external door, no internal doors. And you can go <laughs> buy a private contractor to build you any kitchen, bathroom, tiling, doors, anything you like. Right? Mm. And do it the way you like and resell it later and buy a bigger one after five years when you maybe you've got more kids or whatever the case may be. And so I think yeah. the reason I talk about this model is, is a few things, but... You know, the, the main issue in Australia is, is 
you know, we saw a lot of first home buying recently, right? So it's very hard to say there's no first home buyers. The main issue really mm. is this life cycle housing problem. So when you're in your 20s, you're paying rent, you're saving a deposit, and you're trying to have start a family, and you're at your lowest mm. income years of your life yeah. all at the same time. Yeah. Right? And then when you're in your 40s and 50s, your kids are growing up, right? You're in your highest income earning years, and housing is no issue back then. And so we've actually seen... Mm. The age of first home buying in Australia go from 27 in 1980 to 39 today. And so it's really about giving young people their young adulthood back so that they're not essentially paying the rent, saving the deposit all, mm. you know, all at the same time while they're being squeezed. So it's, I, I, I pitch it as a very pro-family, pro-lifestyle, you know, in, in many ways it's pro-market because, you know, once you set up this parallel system, people can trade within it. And I think it, you know, navigates many of the issues we have right now uh, in Australia. One of the, the problems, there's lots of problems, so I think with our grant system, I think the main one is really just is, is not really there to help first home buyers, it's actually there to help the construction industry, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, because... The problem is, and this is what a lot of first-home buyers don't realise, is that they, if they use grants, go and buy a brand-new property, then where's the secondary market for that brand-new property? So say they get divorced, say they, they something happens, they need to move. And I interviewed countless first-home buyers who got caught in mm -hmm. this way. And in investors similarly, in the sense that the uh, negative gearing is greatest for a brand-new property, that mm -hmm. property's one year old and gets sold, you, you have a lot less um, opportunity to negatively gear, right? So, mm -hmm. who's the secondary market for it? And so, that's one of the reasons I discourage, um, there's, there's a number of reasons, but it's one big reason why I discourage first-home buyers from taking those grants if mm -hmm. they dictate the type of property that you have to buy because mm -hmm. ultimately yeah. you're buying an asset and if that asset has a high proportion and there's loads of data to show that first-home, uh, you know, the first resale of apartments in, in, a, in a Melbourne, Brisbane and, and Sydney, for instance, first resale is often at a loss, a, a very high proportion. So, mm -hmm. therefore, you're not really buying your first home. You might as well say renting. You're going to be better financially if, if then take that free money from the government. So, how does that differ, I guess, in a way from the Singaporean? Yeah. You say that there's like this parallel market so you mm -hmm. can trade within that market. Mm -hmm. Is that, I yeah, guess? Yeah, so essentially they sort of get over the, the, the fact that there is a premium. Well, there's actually more of a premium on the secondhand um, dwellings there than the new ones, um, usually because they're, in more established neighbourhoods, and so it gives you a bit yeah. of a premium. Um, you know, I haven't even told you that in addition to all of this, there are income contingent cash grants if you buy brand new, and further cash grants if you buy within a kilometre of your parents. So it's about fostering this family, looking after its elderly ah. parents as well. And so yeah. you can get up to $80,000 additional grant for buying new. Now, so let me give you a bit of a ballpark. So you might buy that new HDB dwelling for three hundred thousand. The sort of next best alternative, secondhand one, might be five hundred thousand in the HDB market, and then a private condo in that sort of similar area might cost a million dollars. Wow! So, um, so the other thing that I think the Singaporeans really like about the system is you do get a chance to make a bit of capital gain in that market, but it's all just. Um, scaled down compared mm. to the private market by you know less than half and so 
you know, one of the issues you'd probably have to overcome here is people buying new, getting their subsidies, and then in five years selling and, you know, making $150,000 or whatever the case may be. Um, it's not. seen as a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's seen as a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the less that premium, so to your point, Veronica, the less that um, it goes up, the secondhand market fetches a premium on these apartments, and it's probably the better in a way, it mm. sort of discourages turnover and people trying to speculate in what's meant to be just a home ownership market for people to occupy their dwellings. Yeah. I, I think it's um, Nightingale. I'm not sure you know much about their model, um, the housing model, which is sort of a, uh, I guess it's an innovative strategy. I mean, they, they buy land and they partner with um, architects that mm -hmm. uh, are willing to give their time at a much lower rate. They um, cut out, you know, marketing costs and commissions mm -hmm. to people selling and um, they've got a huge uh, demand of people that would love one of their buildings. They're very architecturally nice buildings. They're green, sustainable. Um, mm -hmm. They cut out all the things that would make a building more expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, they do it really, build really smart. Um, and then they also then, you know, give restrictions to the people buying them. So it's like a ballot yeah. system, you know, um, you get lucky if you get one. Um, you can't sell it if you, you know, and you don't want to sell it because the building's all built around community. Mm. Um, and um, I think you've got to sell it within the, at a fixed price. You can't make a lot of gains out of it, mm -hmm. et cetera. And, um, you know, it's been very, uh, it is, a, you know, I guess an innovative strategy there. I guess it just depends on yeah. how much can you actually release. You know, mm -hmm. if you've got 100,000 um, first-home buyers or 200,000 first-home buyers that would love this new mm -hmm. government housing, how are they going to build yeah. all that? And maybe it's literally got to be a ballot system and maybe they can supply 5000 a year or yeah. 10000 a year, but they're not going to be able to really saturate the demand where developers are still going to be able to be out there, you know, selling to first-time buyers. And maybe it has to be, you know, key workers, I guess. You know, yeah. if you're a nurse or you're an ambulance driver or, you know, a teacher um, and, you know, where where they're the ones who hit the hardest, you know. They've got to live around the city because of their work and their their salaries aren't able to compete mm -hmm. with property prices. And so maybe that's a, a part of the solution as well. Yeah, okay. Well, let me just respond to a couple of those things. The Nightingale model, is it sounds a little bit like what is known as a community land trust or a somewhat similar where you sort of buy in at mm. the start to develop a somewhat intentional community um, to cut out any development margins and essentially rather than design the building and then find the buyers for the building, you find the buyers and then design the building around them and so you mm. don't have to yep. incur those selling costs or the risks, etc. Look, I've, I've been involved with groups of people trying to do that in the past. It's very difficult, <laughs> very difficult <laughs> to coordinate, right? And I wish these yeah. guys all the best of luck as they refine the system, right? Because you've got to screen people, make sure they've got the money, mm. there's no building, how do you get the money and so on and so forth. There's lots of... Um, coordinating steps that developers do that you have to do in a slightly different order that not no one's really ready for. Um, mm. <laughs> so, I, look, I, I would encourage and support all of that. I don't know what sort of policy change we can do to encourage sort of lenders to be more active in that sort of space, um, to manage risks of people getting in up front but then who have to withdraw before the building's complete and so on and so forth. All those things I would love to iron out. Um, you know, if you do that, maybe you can get some scale with it and that would could be a great, you know, additional choice in the housing market. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of more choices rather than fewer choices when it comes to housing, yeah. right? So, I would love more community land trusts. I'd love more social housing. I'd love more alternatives, mm. ways to access housing and more secure ways. So, I think that's great. On the In terms of the scale of 
you know, getting a public housing supplier. You know, we build about one and a half to two percent additional stock a year, so about one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dwellings. Just remember, every all the ten million dwellings are already owned in the private market. So a lot of first home buyers, we, you know, we worry about them, but a lot of them are just, you know, from well-to-do families with plenty of assets and good jobs, and that's why they're buying a home, right? And so quite a few of them are still going to just buy in the private market because they've got 10 million houses to choose from. Yeah. Well, mm. yeah. whatever's up for sale, 50,000 yeah. <laughs> or four, you know, whatever happens to be for sale, right? Yeah. But they got a, the choice and they get the exposure to that asset return by buying in the private market. So my, yeah. my sort of, um, you know, expectation would be if you started a sort of Australian version of the Singapore model, and my proposal is called Housemate instead of the Housing Development Board because I like the JobKeeper, JobSeeker, Housemate, Medicare, all those <laughs> Aussie names <laughs> for policies, right? <laughs> um, uh, I think what you'd end up doing is building around 30,000 30, a year. So about a third of first-time buyers would yeah, okay. you'd get. I guess the problem is the first transition period because you've got so many uh, people who haven't bought a home at, many different ages all at the same time. Mm. In Singapore, they have lottery systems um, to regulate that. So you find a build-to-order development, you go out where we want to apply for a three-bedroom, you get your finance approved, you go into the lottery for three-bedroom. And if you say no a certain number of times, then you get penalised, you can't go in another lottery for a certain amount of time. So mm. forces, you know, it's, it's a reasonably fair... Um, system to get yep. people in and, and i've proposed when you know in my housemate proposal that you're gonna have to use a few lotteries at first or maybe as you suggest yeah. additional screening controls so you might you know take public servants school teachers nurses and so on um in a, yep. in a particular city and that's your qualifying pool as you ramp up the capacity to actually build things and i you know i don't I don't, I'm agnostic about who builds it. I'm fine if Stockland comes to me and says, hey, we've got a few good sites here. Can we bargain up front for a bulk price for a housemate to buy everything, take away our risk, and we will keep our guys employed pumping this out mm. in the background um, at no risk to us because you've already essentially mm. agreed to buy the whole thing. And you can then go and allocate it to the nurses, doctors, who are, you know, whoever's uh, the key worker in that yeah. city. So I'm, I'm agnostic about the actual getting houses in the system. There's actually currently a petition in the ACT to trial housemate in the ACT, and they have the advantage of being the major land developer, the territory government, mm. and they have, again, again, the same issue with public sector salaries and, you know, key workers like teachers and nurses and so on, um, you know, outbidding, you know, wealthy political families or whatever the case may be uh, for housing. So, you know, I think if you've got a trial in a couple of key cities and towns... Mm. Um, you know, you can imagine, for example, the nurses union or the teachers union lobbying mm. for it everywhere else and it becoming a real, hey, everyone should be on board with this. Um, so that's where I think you could go with this idea. Do you need a benevolent dictator, though, to make these things happen? <laughs> no, look, I, I have a theory of political change. I, I'm sure you're aware I, I wrote a book about political favouritism called Game of Mates a mm. few years ago. And I guess the way I see it is... You know, we're all both, we're all a little bit um, selfish and we're all a little bit groupish. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're all, we're benevolent to our groups. Uh, we're, we're, we're very selfless to our groups, but we're very pro-group. So we, we're happy to impose costs on others and support mm. our, our own groups. Mm. And I think what happens when you get political change is 
there'll be a crisis where these existing dynamics temporarily break down and there's a real opportunity for a group to reform around some issue. And that's what, you know, if you look at national health services and things like that, you know, the, the UK National Health Service was essentially we can't let returned soldiers die on the street, you know. There's a crisis, we have to do something. That's somewhat true of Australia's housing after the Second World War too. You know, we've just trained up... All, you know, all the young men to shoot each other in a really organised way. Maybe we shouldn't let them be homeless and, and sick. Maybe we should do some stuff. Um, mm. And in Singapore, the way they got the system, there were many um, major fires in the slums. And so there were, you know, 20,000 homeless people overnight. Um, and what do you do for your political credibility when that happens? Well, you have to be the strong man okay. and come in and save the day. Then once... Those 20,000 people get a new dwelling. The, the next 20,000 will go, hey, what about me? If we're in so the business we... now of giving people a place to live, let's, let's stay in that business. We have an opportunity in this country right now. You've got, you've got uh, floods, Lismore, Brisbane. You've got <laughs> your bushfire, you know, there's down the south coast of New South Wales, yeah. you've got people that are still living in caravans. You know, that we have an yeah. opportunity. We've had countless opportunities to do something mm like this yeah look I, I mean the catch right now is it's so difficult to get construction um yeah. jobs done yeah. right yeah. so so not yeah. only have we had this sort of covid uh you know uh, home builder Housing grant type stimulus we've had a global building boom so mm. global uh, material shortages now we've just had all these floods um I, d I don't know you know if i wanted to renovate how long would i wait right um a long yeah. time mm. so like yeah. A little bit like how the central bank operates counter-cyclically with its monetary policy, my expectation would be once you have a large public housing um, developer in the system, you know, as one of many, you know, housing developers out there, they would be more pro they'd be more, uh, you know, anti-cyclical. So when mm -hmm. things start fall, they would start ramping up and accumulating sites and, and kicking things along. Um, and, you know, I proposed that when COVID struck. I said, if you think, every, you know, the economy is going down, you should go and buy undeveloped sites that are approved from developers who don't want the risk on their balance sheet right now at a mm. discount. Yeah. And you should employ <laughs> all the builders who are lined up to just keep building them, but now you own them yeah. as a public housing yeah. supplier and you got them yeah. at a great time at a discount and you can smooth out the construction industry. Uh, of course, that was pretty well ignored. Um, but you, you could see, you know, once that idea is demonstrated in practice, you can see it catching on. Cameron, I mean, the, uh, we just got a listener question yesterday and, um, you know, they we're talking about the Flinsky report and they, uh, they mentioned that we didn't talk about migration. And um, I'd love as a economist um, your take, you know, because the reality is if we keep importing talent, um, which we need as a society, and that's probably I'm not trying to take your answer away. But if we keep um, allowing more and more people to move to our beautiful country, um, because there's only 25 million of us here and there's 7 billion of them in, in the world, um, we're always going to have this problem. We should just cut our migration. What's your sort of like <laughs> economist belief around all that? And um, yeah. Yeah, look, it's a very polarizing debate, the migration one. And I think there's a lot of um, political correct layers in the debate people find it hard to say that we should actually have a limit um to migration i i feel like i'm in a pretty middle ground view that uh, you know i think the optimal rate is about 100,000 80 to 100,000 which is what we had essentially all through the 90s up until 2006 um 
you know, you've got to trade off the, the mixing of culture, the spreading of ideas and, and skills with the, you know, the local labor market and the housing market. Though, in saying that, during the 2010s, 20-teens, we had pretty high migration, but we also had very high housing construction, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, especially apartments. And so you actually find that I think rents peaked around 2015 or 16 in apartments in Sydney and Melbourne. So, you know, there might have been some bit of a temporary effect on housing, but I don't think it's, it's, it's very big. And I think a lot of the mistake uh, people made in 2020 when COVID started was that they thought that migration was doing a lot of the job of keeping house prices up. And so if that yeah, collapsed, yeah. prices would come down. And my view was, mm. well, yeah, but we've also been building a lot. Uh, rents are relatively flat. I can't, I can't see how it's doing a lot now. And so, in fact, in May 2020, I did a podcast and uh, predicted that prices in Australia would get more likely to go up 20% than down 20%. And of course, all of social media called me an idiot and wanted me to hand my degree in. And uh, you we, know, missed, we and, missed you in our full um, forecast report. Yeah. We should have given you a gold star. I think it was just me <laughs> and Chris Joy. Uh, I don't know if you know others who were at the time. Yeah, yeah we know Chris. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Stuart yeah. Weems. He was he was one of the gold stars. Yeah. yeah. So um, so yeah, I think the impact of migration on housing is overblown. The impact of migration yeah. on on entry level labour you know, is, is real and, and reasonable. Um, but, you know, in economics, yeah. it's all about trade-offs. I don't, I don't want closed borders. I think it's been terrible the last two years. But I don't want 250000 mm. a year permanent migration either. You know, <laughs> at, at one stage, it was something like, uh, you know, one in eight people under the age of 30 in Sydney was a foreign student in 2019, right? It was, it was pretty, um, pretty crazy. So you can imagine, you know, that a lot of competition for entry-level jobs in that sort of circumstance. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the, That's what you're saying. the effect on, I think, housing was overblown and, um, you know, we're in a world of trade-offs. I don't think um, closed borders or open borders is the right one, um, but probably a bit less than what we had before COVID is, is optimal. Potentially, um, one of the reasons that the impact on or the, the expected impact on housing is overblown is because migration would potentially have more of an impact on the brand new segment of the market and you can see there's been and and not COVID notwithstanding you know you can see over the last property boom say in Sydney and Melbourne you know 2013 to 17 you know you got some apartments in brand new complexes and, and areas whole areas where values have been falling whereas whereas property prices and median prices are rising so this is not necessarily new you know what i mean so there i guess it's a bit naive just to say oh well god you know if we're going to have no immigration then prices are going to fall it's it's showing a co complete lack of mm. understanding of really the segments of the market mm -hmm. uh as well mm -hmm. and you know this is something that that you know I, I still find quite astounding that you can have types of properties and and individuals losing money when everything else is going up you know and the same things happened in the boom last year mm. yeah well i mean it's interesting in inner city sydney and melbourne i think apartment rents are basically where they were 10 years ago right now um mm. yeah and yeah. so you know 
That's great, in my view. So if you, if you, can't, yeah. if you can't rent yeah. a house in Lismore, move to inner but, city, yeah, but you can't, Melbourne. Yeah, the regions are where, you know, people, the way I see what's happened in the regions is essentially people have taken their inner city incomes and moved to the regions and squeezed mm. people out. I mean, it happens yeah. in, you know, gentrifying suburbs where all the hippies used to live and the high incomes yeah. move yeah. in and squeeze them out. We've just sort of seen a diff- different geographic pattern of that um, take place. But, you know, I, I like having lots of... Um, apartments in the city for people to choose from. Like it's, you mm. know, pe- yeah. people uh, I think misunderstand. I I don't think planning's to blame for high prices, but I want more houses than fewer houses. <laughs> mm. um, I, yeah. I support having uh, more dwellings to choose from. That's for sure. So, Karen, we do a segment called Property Dumbo. Um, have you got a story that we can learn from um, a mistake that could be avoided? I guess it doesn't have to be yourself. It could be. You know, just a story of somebody doing something. Uh, look, um, you know, uh, my head lives in policy land. I can tell you an interesting story about um, public housing and, you know, the New South Wales government planned to sell all this public housing and they planned to raise, you know, $400 million in 2014. They're like, this is going to fund our new public housing. And, and what's really interesting is, is, is the dumb move was, was actually um, to do that. What ended up happening is they delayed it. Um, there were all these delays and they didn't sell most of it till 2017 and they actually raised $700 million, but purely by accident, um, <laughs> when they'd only intended to raise $400 million. So, so I think, uh, you know, that's sort of, uh, you know, pointing out that logic before that owning, owning uh, real estate assets is, is a good thing and, and when our governments panic and sell because they pretend they don't have money, um, they're often just giving the gains to the next person. And did they actually build the public housing? With that money, yeah, yeah. They're slowly, they're slowly using the revenue to, yeah. to build public housing. It's, yeah. very, it's very slow and I think, um, yeah. you know, what can you do <laughs> in, about that in some ways? Um, yeah. It, it's not a good awesome. time. Yeah. Apart from housemates, so just one last question mm. if I may. Um, what would you... What are you so sick of hearing in policy land, as you say? And what would you just like just to say, get over it, let's just get on with it? And this is the, these are the things mm. that you would recommend. <laughs> well, <laughs> the current thing that's been on my mind, there's probably a lot of those, but the current thing on my mind is, is this price to income ratio. Everyone's yeah. saying, oh, price to income is high, mm. therefore it's unaffordable. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but, yeah. but it, you know, you're basically just restating the yield of the asset in a different way. What you're saying is this is yeah. a relatively low yield yeah. asset or that you're relying on capital gains. And does that mean property is unaffordable? Well, no. You know, if, if interest rates are 2% or, or 8%, it, you know, many different price to income ratios can be affordable. So I think, um, yeah. so, so that's sort of the, the main one, misinterpreting the, an asset yield for a measure of how much it costs to occupy a house. Um, mm. I think if we could um, never use that metric again, and actually talk about sort of rent as the cost of occupation and the price as the price of the property asset, uh, we'd mm. go a long way to clarifying a lot of the debates that we have where we confuse, you know, demand for occupying a house with demand for property assets in a portfolio, for example. Um, so, yeah, that would be my one clarification. Oh, I think it's really interesting because, mm. you know, I guess level one thinking people go, Property's worth $3 million, um, you know, how can someone on $200,000 afford that, you know? Mm. And 
The reality is the person not in $200,000 is affording that. Um, and you know what? They're putting all their eggs into that basket and so they've only got a mortgage of $1.5 million. And, yeah. you know, it's it's very sort of surface level. And, you know, there's other pockets where maybe it's only two times income, yeah. you know, and um, et cetera. So, yeah, I agree. It really frustrates me when... And I think a lot of, you know, in financial advice space is they have that sort of level one thinking with the property mm. market. Is mm. It's a very low-yielding product. How can it possibly go mm. up? And they forget to add in the capital gains. They forget to add the oh. lifestyle impact and, you know, and all these other elements to it. And so I do think you've, um, you know, a bit of a bugbear of mine um, <laughs> is those sort of, you know, level one thinking around, you know, trying to simplify the property market into numbers rather than, you know, all these other elements into what causes a price of a an asset yeah. to be worth something. Yeah, no, but I, I think you're yeah. right. Like, um, the property market is not that difficult to understand, I think, if you take that one extra step. It's like, mm. yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest out there from developers, from finances, from banks. For a lot of people from developers, they all have an interest in misrepresenting what's going on, right? Um, well, you guys are able to talk openly and say, you know, new apartments, not an ideal investment. Developer will say, great investment, depreciation, return. And you're like, but actually, you've got to compare the total return because this thing over here gets capital gains, right? And you've got to understand the, the, the different um, di dynamics of the suburb because you obviously, um, you know, you, you want to compare total returns. So, um, yeah, I, I totally agree on that. And I do find it amazing how, how much of... How many of these sort of myths that, that, that are sprinkled around the discussion just, just don't, never seem to go away no matter how many people are out there like you, you know, just trying to stick to the, <laughs> stick to the key points, yeah. right? Yeah, the property beds have a few different um, points and, you know, house to income ratio is one of those, et cetera, and, um, you know, and they just keep on banging these points and, you know, migration is going to cause property prices to crash mm. or... You know, and I, I sort of try to drag them up and try to have these conversations. That's what the podcast is about. <laughs> but unfortunately, they get stuck in that camp and they just can't get their brain to, to take that next step. So I think yeah. it's, um, thank you so much for coming on today. I think uh, it's been an amazing uh, episode. And um, yeah, we'll definitely love to get you back in the future as well. I'd love to chat again. Thanks for having me, Veronica. Thanks very much, Chris. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.